So today in American Conversations, we're doing this every Sunday in the month of May. We're calling it In Plain Sight. And it is about the World Health Organization. And today we're honored to have with us Valerie Bork, who is a poly, poly, policy analyst for Stand for Health Freedom. Welcome, Valerie. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, tell us, first of all, tell the audience about Stand for Health Freedom and and um, and just explain what you guys are all about so the audience understands. All right, great. So we are a nonprofit and we're dedicated to protecting people's rights to make healthcare decisions for themselves and for their families. So we have a digital advocacy center where people can engage with their elected officials either through automated or personalized messages with emails and phone calls. And we try to make it as easy and seamless as possible for people to get engaged with the political process because there is so much going on. So we just try to find that signal through the noise for people and make it as um, easy as possible to digest the information and contact their elected officials. One of the things that we're focusing on right now, of course, is the primaries. And so we're endorsing candidates who are standing for health freedom, who are standing for medical freedom and informed consent. So if you go to our website, standforhealthfreedom.com, right on the front page, there's vote for health freedom. It's a tab at the top and you can click there and then you can go to your state and you can see who we have endorsed. And each one of those candidates are for against medical mandates. They're for health freedom. And so we're trying to educate people into action. And of course, another thing that we're really focused on right now is what the World Health Organization is doing. So so before we get to that, to the World Health Organization, so you guys are going, or have been endorsing candidates that are standing for the medical autonomy and medical freedom, uh, no mandated masks, no mandated uh, vaccinations. And um, are you going to be doing this throughout the entire primary season as you find those candidates? And how do those candidates, uh, how do they get endorsed? Do you give them a, a, a survey? Yeah, absolutely. We have a very simple four question survey that um, it's on the page. You can, If your candidate is not there yet, it's very easy to just send it to them either through email or for there's a text code as well. And so if they answer those questions properly, uh, properly meaning for medical freedom and for informed mm -hmm. consent, if it's properly in my opinion, uh, so then right. we will um, set them out there as endorsed candidates for medical consent and freedom. All right. So you're a, you're a lawyer by trade, by education, um, and you're now the policy analyst. So give us the background of how you decided to take the deep dive. Because when you and I were, were talking off camera, I mean, it seemed very logical to me about how you decided to get in, into this analysis of what is actually happening at the World Health Organization. And for the audience that has not tuned in, there is a general assembly in Geneva, Switzerland, May 22nd to the 28th, and there are things that are happening that affect every citizen across the globe if uh, people don't wake up and take a look at what's in motion now. So, Valerie, give us the history of how this thing started, because there is to be a vote where, uh, because of a proposal for um, the countries, the members at the World Health Organization, they're going to be voting on having whether or not the country's health sovereignty, and this is beyond COVID, Health sovereignty is turned over to the director general of the World Health Organization. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a lot going on on the global stage in the wake of what's been going on across the globe, of course. And so right now there are two different things that the World Health Organization has going on that would affect U.S. sovereignty going down the line unless we're able to step in and have our lawmakers and 
you know, our voice heard in this process. Um, so the two different things are amendments to the already existing international health regulations. And that is what you were just referring to that's going to be voted on, presumably at the World Health Organization or World Health Assembly that's happening starting on the 22nd. It goes from the 22nd to the 28th. And I just said the word presumably because in the provisional um, agenda that's out, there's no vote scheduled, like a line item vote that's scheduled, but it is the voting body. So it's on the agenda for the committee to talk, to discuss, and then it will go to the plenary session and that where is, is where presumably it will be voted on. So we've got the amendments to the already existing IHR, so we can get a little bit deeper into that, but just to give a framework for everyone listening, the additional thing going on is this pandemic treaty is what it's being referred mm -hmm. to. That's a totally right. separate process. And so this is where it gets so confusing because there's so many different things going on. This separate process is um, a treaty that has been proposed by many different multilateral organizations, you know, within the WHO, the US has been promoting it as well. So this would be a treaty amongst all of the member states of the World Health Organization um, and it's being negotiated and drafted right now. So we don't know exactly what is going to be in it, but we can make some pretty good guesses, which we can also just get into in a little bit. And, you know, my personal assessment of these two simultaneous tracks is that these amendments to the IHR that we'll get into are going to be a compliance structure that would give that um, ability to assess whether a, a member state of the World Health Organization has been non-compliant and then right. the treaty is going to bring the teeth and the finances. So I mean, that's so a, let's a very so let's let's pack up just historically and chronologically. Th this is this is the IHR regulations mm -hmm. that were established in two thousand and five. Uh, it's about seventy four pages long. So explain how that first came about so we can do this chronologically so people understand clearly how this evolved. Okay, so the 2005 document you just held up is actually the latest iteration of it. It actually um, has its origins in the document that was adopted by the World Health Assembly at the inception of the World Health Organization in uh, 48 or 49, I believe. 48. So we um, initially, there were international agreements having to do with um, various diseases and how countries would relate to each other on them. And eventually mm -hmm. those got consolidated into these sanitary regulations and they were specifically addressing specific diseases. And in 2005, there were a handful of um, iterations that that sanitation document went through over the years and it eventually became the international health regulations. The 2005 amendments are very significant though because it expanded the reach and authority and oversight of the World Health Organization from those specific diseases that were enumerated in the previous iterations of the regulations right. to include any kind of public health emergency of international concern. That was a new concept in international law and in this global health scheme that is burgeoning, that's coming into fruition at this point now. That was a massive expansion, as you can tell, because, you know, you go, you go from saying you can only do these very specific enumerated things. You only have authority when this disease is present to saying anytime you declare that there is an emergency of international concern, then it triggers this international agreement and the expanded authority of the World Health Organization. 
So that was, that's what we have right now. Um, so the treaty is totally separate. The IHR mm -hmm. is, a, it's an executive agreement, basically, even though it, it, it's called a treaty by some in the United States, it hasn't been treated as a treaty. So when those regulations uh, were amended in 2005 and those expansions happened, there was no input from Congress. There was no input from the American people. They just, they were adopted under these executive agreements and the delegations that Congress made in 1948 when they authorized the executive branch to become engaged with the World Health Organization. Uh, so at this point, we have yet another round of these amendments being proposed. And the US uh, put forth this proposal in January of this past year because there's a deadline to have it four months before the assembly. This so, year, um, now this, this year, you mean January yeah. 2022, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, to my knowledge, it wasn't a public, publicly available document until this past month or so. I don't know of it circulating around before that. So there was no ability for the U, uh, U.S. citizens to really see what it was until recently. Um, and these these amendments that are being proposed by the U.S. and they say on behalf of 40 other member states are very significant. It's yet another massive expansion. And so just to like give a bird's eye view and then we'll go back. The IHR 2005 amendments are in place. Whatever happens with these amendments, that will stay in place. So this is where we have leverage and we have power and we have the ability to potentially affect this process is if we get our lawmakers engaged. Uh, so the amendments that have been proposed right now, basically it would expand that emergency declaration from just a public health international emergency of international concern to also a regional concern. So it would mean not just the director general of the WHO, but any regional director would be able to declare that there's a regional emergency. And also, for our audience, for our audience sake, that they need to understand that there are six regional directors underneath the uh, director general of the the World Health Organization. Yes, yes, thank you. And I also I feel like it's important to, for people to understand like, what does it mean. So who cares if we declare an emergency? What does that mean for you and me? What it means is that legal obligations and responsibilities shift. It's supposed to be a temporary measure, um, but then, you know, when there are no statutes or anything that are uh, delineating how long it can be in place, then it, you know, ends up being this perpetual thing that we ended up seeing over the last few years in the United States with this perpetual state of emergency that we're still in. Um, so when there's a declared state of emergency, there's a balance that shifts between the public good and the individual rights. And so in the name of protecting the health of the public in an emergency, the government declares that they can basically not respect individual rights as much in a temporary way, which, you know, in a very logical way, if you want to, if we want to pretend that everything is like nice and squeaky clean, that makes some sense. You know, you have to make sure that you protect mm -hmm. what's going on, uh, but that's not the way that these laws end up being used. So that's the challenge that we have there. Um, so the um, the amendments would also propose this new intermediate health alert. And all of these things could be done basically unilaterally because another thing that's being proposed in these amendments is to remove the requirement that the member state, the place where they're declaring there would be this public health emergency, that they have any participation in the process at all, that they allow any kind of investigation that they agree that there is. So, I mean, it's 
in this, you know, hypothetically, if these amendments passed, it would be completely possible for the director general or any regional director to say, hey, I see that there is a social media post on Twitter and, you know, there's a bunch of people talking about how they, they saw somebody with a fever and, you know, then they saw somebody else with a fever and that was happening in, you know, in California. And so we're going to declare that there's an emergency in California. Yeah, and that I'm saying social media because another thing that is being amended here is that they're lowering the threshold for the information and the information quality and the integrity and validation of the data that they would base their public health declarations on. I mean, these are just the why do you right? But why do you think that they're lowering the standards? I mean, to me, that that seems to be a red flag. If you were really concerned about health, it seems that you'd want to. You know, if you're going to do this regionally or globally, you would want to have more integrity. And and who's to say if this is ethical or not or how it's implemented is ethical? Is okay, there any that. independent body that 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 you found that would oversee this in terms of, it, of its ethic it being ethically applied? No, not as far as ethics. I mean, there's um, this is in the name of surveillance, basically. So this is. All of these um, potential amendments and the treaty is all about preventing the next pandemic because we're all so sure that there is going to be another pandemic. Leaders across the world talk about it. You know, our own government is talking about it. We're not talking about if, we're talking about when. This is about, ostensibly about surveillance and being able to access data that they hadn't been able to access before and link together data networks that hadn't been linked together before. And yeah, you know, that's the. That's it's tracking, the, it's tracing, it's surveillance. And we still don't know because world leaders have not taken the have not taken the steps to find out the origin of this one. Although everybody keeps on talking about the next one is coming, whether we like it or not, which should be a huge red flag to the world citizens of the world. That, that 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 part of the equation is something that I think is just extraordinary. I mean, everybody keeps on talking about how much is, this has cost. Bill Gates gets up there and says that we need a billion dollars every year in his latest TED Talk because the IMF has come out and said that this is an economic disaster of $14 trillion, as if this is over, which it is not economically over. And at the same time, nobody's taken the leadership to figure out and, and put some real, real you know, power behind getting to the bottom of whether this was a lab leak, whether this was an accidental lab leak, whether it was an intentional lab leak, whether it was a bioweapon or whether it was a wet market. I mean, that's that's the part of this equation that I think people should be spending a lot of time thinking about, because if you don't know the origin of this, I quite frankly can't figure out how people think that they can have a preparedness uh, of the next pandemic that everybody's predicting. What have you found to be the most shocking in, in all of these amendments from a, from a legal point of view? Well, before we move on to that question, I would just build on what you were just saying is that there's insane, and maybe this is part of the shock, is that there's um, not only are we not investigating how things came to be, or you know, some would say even suppressing information about how things came to be. Right. 
part of this amendment process and part of the treaty process is actually going to, from my point of view, expand the potential for more of these things to happen. So when we're talking about not if, but when, one of the things that I'm seeing that is alarming in here are things where we're shoring up pathogen, sharing of pathogens, and you know, making sure that everyone has access you know, in the name of surveillance and in the name of understanding, you know, what's going on, but we're they're like pathogens. And so um, there's a new World Health Organization biobank, I believe is the term that's being used, being built in Switzerland to, to, to house these pathogens and do this kind of research. And the one health approach, which is something that um, already is an initiative of the World Health Organization is being linked in. And this is how, like, this is where we see how these things like all come together. They're already in pieces all over the place. The One Health approach was an initiative where we're talking about, you know, zoonotic threats and the climate, how climate is going to affect, you know, how pathogens spread against around the globe and things like that. So that when you hear the term One Health, you know, that's one of the buzzwords that you need to watch out for. And that's about this, like, linking of all of these different systems and all of these different data banks and databases all together. And so um, there's, from my point of view, more risk of, you know, any kind of accidental or, you know, otherwise kind of leak and, you know, funding that's going to research organizations for searching out potential species jumping pathogens. I mean, that to me is insanity. I understand surveillance, but this is potentially how we ended up in this circumstance to begin with, isn't it? Well, yes, and 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 people have to understand that that uh, th- this one health, if if they Google one health University of California at Davis, they will see that there's there's a connection there. Uh, there is a one health. The, the certain people who are part of the international consortium of what I have deemed to be called the coronavirus hunters who go out to and find these these uh, coronaviruses and then bring them back to the labs and figure out whether or not they're transmissible to human beings. Um, I, to me, that is sort of like an engine that should possibly, people need to put the brakes on that because that is encroaching into nature and bringing it out to the human population. Um, I, I know that from doing some of those interviews over the course of the last two years, there's about 2,000 of these coronaviruses that have been discovered. There are, but they claim that there's 800,000 un, yet undetected. So that part of this money that would be going into is to going out there and finding these coronaviruses, taking them to the lab, finding out if they're transmissible to the human race. And that in and of itself is dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's very dangerous. And that was done under the PREDICT project that was at USAID, uh, during it started during the Obama well it started before that but it really t- the predict project took off during the Obama administration then it basically lost its funding um, under the Trump administration and now it's gone private so it, it yeah it, it is it, it is uh, it's scary there's also something else and this is this is the September uh, 2021. American pandemic preparedness transforming our capabilities. This was written by two people that were in the Biden administration, uh, Jacob Sullivan and Eric Lander. Eric Lander was caught, uh, was basically, he was the uh, assistant to the president for science and technology out of MIT. Mm -hmm. He was uh, 
asked to step down because I, I think sexual harassment or I don't know, he, he spoke ill to women or something like that in the Biden administration just recently, months, a couple months ago. But this is a document that talks about a universal vaccine, which is really the reason why they want to go out and find these coronaviruses. They want to find the families, the coronavirus families. And th like, like today's COVID-19 is related to uh, SARS-1 back in 2003. So they're part of the same family. They want to find out if, if we have uh, enough families of uh, coronaviruses that are transmissible to, to human beings so that they can have universal vaccinations for that family of the coronavirus. And that may be what the bank is about that they're talking about, that they're going to keep these pathogens in. Why would people do this? I mean, you're, you're in the health community. You're a lawyer. You've looked at this, you know, from, from a international perspective. Why would people do this? People, uh, like the people that are involved in actually doing or people are allowing it to happen. I mean, well, it's both. I mean, somebody's got to be profiting from it. I mean, the, the, the first answer that comes to mind is fear. I mean, there's fear on so many different levels. I mean, the, the very basic level here of the fear is the fear of illness, the fear of something you can't control. I mean, so there's the fear propaganda at the base of it about, you know, what if this happens? What is the next one going to be like? You know, what happens? What, you know, we're terrified of illness as human beings, and we're taught to be terrified of illness. And, you know, we've got situations where, you know, for example, the, the children, when it comes to the coronavirus exposure have basically almost a 100% survival rate, but yet we're still saying and, you know, trying to um, push these vaccines for children when, you know, do you really need to take the risks when you look at a risk benefit situation? Do you need to take the risks of an, an experimental vaccine? Because none of these, even if you want to talk about community, none of them have been approved for any children. And so mm -hmm. you've got this huge amount of risk based on this experimental technology, this novel technology that was, you know, pushed into fruition very quickly versus, you know, this, this basically almost 100% survival rate. Um, so fear from my point of view is that the, is a driving force behind all of this. I mean, and if you want to get to a, another level, you know, you've got, um, you know, so there's there's people then who addressing that fear would think that they're doing the right thing. And that's a noble thing. I mean, that this is where it gets so complicated. This is where, you know, a lot of us in this work grapple with this question of, you know, how can people let this happen? How do they not see what's happening? How would you participate in this? And it just comes down to like awareness and seeing beyond fear, in my opinion. So what so for, from a legal point of view, what is it that, that people should be looking for? And, and uh, in terms of this, you know, General Assembly, I, you know, this, this, so this is this is going to go forth. It's going to be part of a discussion. Uh, it's going to expand the the um, the authority of the the director and the gen director general and the regional directors of the World Health Organization if it goes through. But the mere fact that they're talking about it in international circles would lead one to believe that it it, it certainly has the intent for a successful vote somewhere down the line. Yeah, you know, I can, uh, there's a series of articles that was recently published in the British Medical Journal and one of the, um, and it's about the way forward after Corona, the, the, the lessons that we learned ending this pandemic and securing the future. 
And so this was published in April uh, 2022, I have. And so there's a group that's the um, IPPPR, the International Preparedness, Pandemic Preparedness and Response Group that was convened to give a report to last year's World Health Assembly about the lessons that we had learned and what we should right. do moving forward. And so, you know, you can look at this article, um, and I don't know how we can post the link here, but one of their main takeaways, I'm going to read it to you, establish whose financial independence, strengthen the authority and independence of the director general, strengthen the governance capacity of the executive board, including by establishing a standing committee for emergencies, focus whose mandate on normative policy and technical guidance, empower who to take a leading, convening, and coordinating role in operational aspects of emergency response. So that's just one of their many, um, many things that they're looking for, but that kind of just hits the nail on the head with both of those documents, because they're going to work in tandem. The international health, health regulations that are there right now are not something that at this point we in the U.S., our lawmakers are considering a treaty. But I think that this is part of the education that we have to do right now is we need to call and text and email and get in touch with our lawmakers and say, hey, you remember how the um, executive office has this authority from a 1948 joint resolution when the World Health Organization was nascent and Congress gave this authorization to the executive branch it's time to revisit that and see what they've done with that power and where they're about to take it. Because there is a point where we get to where it's no longer just an executive agreement about something. So these sorts of agreements right. are supposed to be things where they're not going to change the substantive properties of our obligations and responsibilities to other nations and what other nations uh, situations could affect on our soil. You know, so I also want to, I feel like now is a good time to address this, um, what some people might think is an alarmist statement. When we say the who is potentially, you know, Biden's going to be giving our sovereignty over to the who. That's potentially a very inflammatory and scary statement that people might see as just fear mongering, or it might just turn them off and say, okay, this has gone too far. I'm not going to pay attention anymore. That can't be happening. All of these things happen in very slow ways. It's it's a creep. It's not just, you know, a, an invasion. Like it would be very clear to us if somebody, you know, was had boots on our soil and that would be an attack on our sovereignty that people would understand. Right. What's going Pearl on? Harbor. We can we can, <laughs> we can understand a Pearl Harbor, we can understand 9/11. Exactly. People can wrap their heads around that. This is a totally different front and it's something that's been being woven together over many presidencies, over met, over generations, basically. These are, um, you know, pieces like we were just talking about the One Health approach. And now that's something that the WHO had going on individually. And now that's getting woven into the IHR potentially and the new pandemic treaty. So all of these initiatives and financing and things of that nature all coalescing into the point that is the World Health Organization, which makes logical sense as we were just talking about because people are afraid and when you're afraid when you feel threatened you want to have someone or something to tell you this is how you need to make your decisions but that's not how we want things to happen in america the sovereignty sovereignty means the ability to be independent this is mm -hmm. the essence of our country this is the declaration of independence this is saying we do not want somebody on another 
country on another land being able to tell us what to do here in our place. And that is so essential for our freedom, but also for our health, because we are all individuals in different places, in different geographies, with different economic situations. Our localized response to whatever health needs there are for individuals and communities is the essence of how we're as a globe going to have the best health outcomes. And learning from each other's individualized responses are the ways that we're going to protect our health freedom the best and the global health population, the, the global health, uh, you know, public health. So Val Valerie, I want you to stay with us on this program. And I want to bring in Dr. Peter Bregan, who's a friend of this program. Um, Peter, <clears throat> welcome to the show today. And I just, before we begin, I just want everybody to know I'm crazy about this book and crazy about this man and his wife, <clears throat> Global Predators. We are the prey. Dr. Peter Bregan, welcome. Welcome. Hi. Hi. And you know, you know, stand for health freedom. I understand because you're pushing the petition that they are pushing out for people to. Oh sign. yeah, we did a petition with them, um, mm. uh, led by myself and Ginger and her mother. Three old people, uh, ages seventy-one, um, eighty-six, and um, ninety-five, uh, saying, "Hey, don't don't shut down on behalf of us old folks." Mm -hmm. um, we want you guys to live. We'll take care of ourselves. We'll take medications. We'll stay home. So uh, we've actually done a petition with you. And Valerie's uh, discussion is very, very uh, accurate in many, many, in almost always. And um, uh, you've had some new and good information. I would love to get a hold of, I'm not sure whether you call it the PPR, but the group that was advising the who on the next steps and the empowerment of the director general. I would love to get that. Um, now, do you know what I'm referring to? And you quoted it, and it sounds very much like what Tedros went on to say on January 24th. Yeah. On 24th, this will give you, this will ring the bell for you. He says, strengthen who as the uh, leading and directing authority on global health at the center of the global health architecture. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you had a document that was encouraging to go in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. So the group is called the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. And they prepared a report that they presented at last year's World Health Assembly. And you're, you're spot on when we are reading these documents, we're hearing the language from the leaders. So in theory, this is an independent panel. Um, There's no such thing. You, you mean it's not, a, it's not an independent panel. It is. An, I mean, it was set up as an independent panel, but you know, it, like looking at this language is a way that you could kind of decode things and follow this trail of how influence. Yeah, it's is just a, one more step toward the dictatorship. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to get a hold of that. You know, uh, I, you, you've got my email in there, I'm sure, in your somewhere. And uh, if you would send me the link to that. I'd like, I'd like to elaborate on a number of things that you said, and in some cases take them in a slightly different direction. Um, first, um, I wouldn't put so much emphasis anymore on pandemic preparation. I think it's misleading people. They very clearly now want to go after global health. 
And that's not pandemic preparation. They want to control global health. And that's what that group that you were quoting were saying. And again, I want to read what Tedros said to his executive committee. It sounds like somewhat after that report came in that the priority was, quote, strengthening who as this lead as the leading and directing authority on global health at the center of the global health architecture. And he says this about three or four days after he gets the American amendments. I don't know if he, he knew you know, where he stands and uh, how much they were all working together, but I think it's just one package. And so his interpretation of what's going on is that he becomes a dictator. And if you read through pretty carefully, it sounds like a dictator. And it's not, I mean, he hardly mentions pandemic preparation in the in his statements as to what the goal is. It's all about global health and the global health architecture. And furthermore, the amendments, I don't know that they once mentioned pandemic preparation by, by term and the new, the new changes. It's all about global health. Mm -hmm. And um, their definitions of global health, um, as Tedros recently, by, by the way, I did learn from your presentation, I think it was very, very good, but uh, Tedros said at his, uh, in the Ukraine just a week or two ago that war is a disease. There is no limits on how to interpret uh, threats to mental health, I think that, and physical health. And I, I could quote, but I, I won't go on, but the but both the constitution of WHO and the preamble to these uh, health regulations, the international health regulations, talk about the breadth of what they mean. And they mean justice. Mm -hmm. They mean the whole works. And the woman who probably wrote these things, um, who is um, Lois, L-O-Y-C-E, Pace, She's at the HHS. They come in under her name. Lois Pace got her master's in public health and justice. Mm -hmm. Two of the most terrifying words that one could combine because public health is very totalitarian. All public health writings act as if they will tell the world what to do. There's no concept of a bill of rights or no concepts of collateral damage, no concepts of the individual freedom in public health. Mm -hmm. It's disgraceful the way it's uh, the way they think. Combine it with justice, which is the progressive extreme left uh, flattening of everybody to bring us together as you know one great Honduras. So, I mean, we can't exaggerate here the degree of um, of the threat and the. Um, I mean, those are a couple of the main things. And, and I'd like to then fill out uh, on two, two issues. Um, one is uh, who is the World Health Organization politically? And the other is um, how do things come about? And they don't, incremental is, is, is very true. And, and Ginger has kind of taught me about that. They have a word for it. I can't remember what it is, but the, but the progressives and the globalists, they do things one at a time. Like in New York State, I've seen since I've been here for, gosh, 20 years, uh, back in New York State, 
Um, you see the incremental taking away of doctors' rights, doctors' rights to co control opiates, doctors' rights to do this, to do that. And then eventually you don't have any more rights as a physician and the patient-physician relationship collapses during COVID-19. But there are other movements that are rapid when things are vulnerable. And this is a time of rapid movement. This is not incremental. This is creating a dictatorship at the World Health Organization. Um, but it's all, but Peter, it's also part of the, the great reset that has already been in the works for a long period of time. That's right. But this is a major leap and it precedes an even greater leap, which is the making of the treaties, which are totally separate and again are not about pandemic preparedness. Right. The treaties are about giving over global health care as a nation to the World Health Organization in order to um, make for a global and, uh, uh, you know, one health. And One Health, by the way, has also been endorsed by the CDC. They have a page on One Health. So that's how profound these connections are and how deep. Well, Peter, it's part of our foreign policy. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. You know, it, it's behind mm -hmm. closed doors all the way around. It's not just yeah. Davos, the World Economic Forum. Well, that I haven't gotten WHO. into yet. It's yes. also part of our foreign policy. I have no doubt about that. Do you want to get more specific, Christine? But I have no doubt about that. But well, the, the PREDICT project, time. the PREDICT yeah. project was an, it, what, it, under the US, USAID, which is under State Department, yeah. was the international consortium of science and researchers yeah. that went out there to, to, to hunt for the coronaviruses to find out if they were transmissible. Yeah. It's already been established, all right? in our foreign policy under USAID. USAID right now is actually distributing some of the US pharmaceutical vaccinations overseas. Yeah. I mean, USAID is, is distributing Pfizer to the Palestinians. So, I mean, in, you know, yeah, definitely, definitely. I understand why. what you mean. And I'm I mean, there, there's agreement. certain ways, certain ways that pharmaceutical manufacturing distribution happens, but under this COVID situation, it almost seems like all the rules have been thrown out. It's a window of opportunity yeah. for people to move in for agendas. All right. And there are people yeah. that believe that one shoe fits all feet. And I've seen this on the international stage now for 22 years with mm -hmm. the anti-human trafficking efforts. And again, the most important way to handle these problems is really on the local level as opposed to the international. Mm -hmm. And the level of corruption for any global fund and it doesn't matter whether it's at the UN, it doesn't matter whether it's the WHO, it doesn't matter whether it's any of these private family global foundations or the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. The amount of fraud that is inside these global funds is Absolutely. astronomical. And anybody that's in the international arena knows that. That's, of course, and also a lot of what our book is about COVID-19 and the global predators. Let me again try to just fill in a little bit of my own perspective on, on this, which is, is close to yours, very, very similar. Um, <clears throat> a lot of this is just BS. Um, we have never found or proven the emergence of a SARS-CoV from nature, period. 
So it's not like we're looking for something we've found again and again. They lie. Even SARS-CoV-1, which appeared in China and was blamed on wet markets in 2003, was never located in nature. And it's one of the reasons they went into the caves of Batwoman and the other people in the Wuhan was to try to, uh, to show it came from the caves. They have never been able to do it. What they have papers about is SARS-CoV-like, meaning that if we grab it and put all the ingenuity of human beings to manipulating this poor, helpless, harmless, virus in our labs we can make a pathogen and well they may be do, they may be doing that but they're also looking for coronaviruses in the in the in the wild well they, that, that is that is the what place. they were doing peter you can't deny that yeah that but is what, they did they, under the what are they project. doing with them what are they doing with them is what i'm getting at I don't well, what, get what they're figuring this this is what I'm, i've been trying to explain to everybody they want to <clears throat> they want to go out to find the eight hundred thousand coronaviruses yeah. They want to find out which ones are related to create the families. They want to find out which ones are transmissible to human beings to create universal vaccinations. Yes. This is in this document, okay? I know what they the, say. And that is I, I know what I, they say, but I tell you they're lying. No, they're not, Peter, they're not lying. That is what the, Peter, oh, I'm not going to disagree get, then. May I disagree? Well, but the PREDICT project is- I don't care what the it. projects say. They have been in labs making virulent coronaviruses since 2003. Whatever they say about all the wonderful things they want to do and they want to make these uh, vaccines and so on and so forth, they're going to do them no matter what. They have been making SARS-CoV viruses, multiple ones since 2003, in labs with U.S. taxpayer money from Fauci through Echo Health in many of the cases. We've been funding Chinese labs. We've been funding Chinese researchers. We've been funding collaborative labs. And the Chinese were having multiple leaks of SARS-CoV-2 viruses by 2003 and four. So I'm saying, yes, I know what the papers are saying and what, and you know, how they're going to make these into, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the truth of the matter is they've known for decades, they cannot make an adequate um, virus, an adequate vaccine. They, they said it in papers and they've, they, they've known it for a long, long time, but they've known that the coronavirus is the most easily manipulated one they have to make into widespread pandemic weapons. And they've been doing this for a long, long time. And I'm not denying what you're saying, Christine, but I want to put it in a context of what they're really, really doing. Um, let me let me take a breath. I, I don't need to get overheated. My age is probably not even safe to get so excited. Um, Peter, so, you're let me friend, let me fill you're a friend of the show. You're a friend of the show. But let's go back to Peter. Peter, we're gonna go back to why we're doing this show in plain sight, which is because of the WHO General Assembly. Okay. Let's yes. focus on that. All right. But I want to what I want to focus on is that it's all that it's it's, it's too naive to think that they don't know what the hell they're doing. I do think that they know what they're doing, Peter. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with well, you. Well, that's where I'm disagreeing a little with Valerie. Valerie, 
when I look at what they're doing, they had warnings in 2020, right during Operation uh, Warp Speed, from a major study funded by, by Fauci, that these uh, vaccines were going to kill people. Mm. And they knew it was going to kill people. Peter, that's a different show. We got to focus okay. on the General Assembly. Because I think you made a really great point, Dr. Bregan, though, that we are uh, in a place where there's a giant leap being taken. Right now, we're in kind I of. I think it's a giant leap, yes. It's like a, a, a we're in kind of a legal limbic space, so to speak. You know, right now, the power, the um, you know, authority is looking to expand in a way that it never has before. And so, you know, Absolutely. in international law um, and with these agreements, it's all about what we allow to happen. It's about the tradition and the customs and what we allow to perpetuate. And so that's the opportunity we have right here in this space where okay. we don't know what the next step is going to be. Like we know what they want the next step to be. Yeah. What do we want? Well, I'd like to I'd to like be? to address it directly. First of all, they gathered 47 nations. They had the US when it submitted its second follow-up document on, on uh, January uh, 26. They had 20 nations and the EU, which is 47 nations. The 20 nations include Japan, India, South Korea, multiple um, nations from South America, Bolivia, and so on. So that if it comes to a vote, they're going to win. I have no doubt. And all of our efforts have to go, I think, in two directions. <clears throat> One is to so embarrass them, and, and Christine and Valerie and Peter, we're all working toward that, to so publicize and show that this is a treasonous giveaway by the Biden administration that, uh, that, that maybe the U.S. will withdraw, withdraw the um, memorandums. That's the only way it'll stop. And they, they presented them. I'm sure they can withdraw them. I think we need to tell people that this is entirely consistent, what they're doing with everything else the Biden administration is doing. And we have to make it an election campaign in November, no matter what the outcome of this particular thing, because we're still going to have the treaties. So whether this succeeds or not, and I think it's going to succeed, but in the meanwhile, we got to educate the hell out of the public and stop the treaties. Because in the treaties, <clears throat> which are also supported by the Biden administration, definitively supported by them, by the Secretary of State, giving a talk at the WHO about how we, we're going to support them in general, uh, getting more powerful, we actually give up sovereignty directly. It's not even indirect. We give it up. We say, hey, we go into a global network based on, on the one uh, health which means that human beings are one third of the issue and then the, the other thir two thirds of the environment. It's defined, one else is defined as, as a broad concern about humans, animals, and the environment. Yeah. Uh, that's gonna be the health system they wanna impose on the US and, uh, and the rest of the world. And the Biden administration, um, and it was Robert Malone that really, I heard him give a talk that really pinpointed this more than I had seen it. it um, one reason they would want to go in that direction, because by connecting with who, they bypass federalism. Federalism says... You that think that, state, Valerie, let me interrupt you, Peter, because Valerie's a lawyer. You think that's possible, Valerie? 
so yes and no. So I mean, we'll take it to the you know the Constitution basically. So Article Six of the Constitution says that you know, Congress makes the law of the land, and treaties would be the equivalent of a federal law. But treaties must be adopted by the executive branch only with the advice and consent of two thirds of the Senate. And so this is where we have an opportunity, and I want people to really engage with their lawmakers now because I think you're totally right. At this point, we need to stop this train as much as we can in America. And you're totally right, Dr. Bregan, about the Biden administration's goals. I'm going to take this one opportunity to read something I've been um, itching to read here. The United States should enhance cooperation with the World Health Organization, regional health organizations in individual countries, including data sharing with appropriate United States departments and agencies to help detect and quickly contain infectious disease outbreaks or bioterrorism agents before they can spread. This is from S2487, proposed in 2002, the Global <laughs> Pathogen Surveillance Act submitted by Senator Joe Biden. So mm. this is a long situation. Oh, you got to send me that too, please. <laughs> sure, yeah. I will. So I also want to point out, so, so we're talking about federalism, those amendments, the proposed amendments in 2005 that the World Health Assembly voted on, and the U.S. did adopt them with reservation though and here's the reservation that we put in the united states put in when we agreed to the 2005 amendments the government of the united states of america reserves the right to assume obligations under these regulations in a manner consistent with its fundamental principles of federalism with respect to obligations concerning the development strengthening and maintenance of the core capacity requirements uh, they should be implemented implemented by the federal government or state governments as appropriate and in accordance with the constitution to the extent implementation comes under the legal jurisdiction of the federal government. And with respect to the state governments, the federal government shall bring such obligations with favorable recommendation to the notice of appropriate state authorities. So this is something we need to hold them to. Yes. And we need the Congress to step in and say at this point, this is not an executive agreement that you're you're trying to get us into. This is now a treaty and you need to go through the legal channels that our constitution gave us. Uh, again, to get it back to, we, this will become law if we allow it to become law because exactly. law is what we allow in this space. And so we just need to wake up our Congress people. Uh, so the recent campaign that we did with Stand for Health Freedom has been massively successful in waking up our Congress people. So we Wonderful. asked people to sign on to HR 419, the representatives, and this is no taxpayer dollars for the World Health Organization Act. And since we launched our campaign, five additional lawmakers have signed on to it. But they don't know what's going on. They don't understand yet what's going on. And I don't fault them, there's so much going on. And this has been coming from so many different places. And I know in my heart, if they understood what was at stake here and they understood the, the long game here, that they would be stepping in. I mean, this is something that's been flying under the radar, so to speak, like you said, it, it, it's been, there's been an incremental and it's been put in place in different places. But now, like you said, there's a big leap being taken. And that's where we need people to step in. Guys, we got to go. Um, I want to thank you both. We'll be back. We're going to cover this again in plain sight every Sunday between now and the end of the month, uh, covering the WHO General Assembly. Valerie Boric, Peter Bregan, thank you very much. Nice to meet you, Valerie.